Well, good morning. How are you guys doing? Great, 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 great. Uh, I think I had too much coffee this morning. <laughs> like, I'm like, I don't know if I'm nervous or if I'm going to pass out because I had too much caffeine. But either way, you got me no matter what happens. So, Well, hey, listen, my name is Dustin. I'm the worship pastor here. Um, I'm super excited for today. This has been something that has been working on me for a long time, and I never actually thought I would get to talk about this, and so I'm pretty stoked. Listen, uh, the last multiple weeks we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and we've talked about things like being the salt of the earth. We've talked about things like anger, um, retaliation, loving your enemies, being perfect as the Lord is perfect, um, Jesus coming and fulfilling the law, and we've spent some serious time on this, and what I've noticed is that Jesus has a specific view of what it looks like to live as the people of God. But have you ever wondered where that view comes from? Like, where does Jesus get the idea that God's people should live the way that he's calling them to live? Like, why, why is purity so important to Jesus? Why is it so important to him that we are able to kindle and control our anger? Why is it so important to Jesus that we don't give in to lust? And uh, why does Jesus see divorce as so destructive and keeping our word as so important? Uh, why is not retaliating rep- important? And why in the world is loving my enemy something Jesus is passionate about me doing? Have you ever thought about that? Well, listen, it, it comes from Jesus' view of where our identity is, where our identity comes from. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do a 30,000-foot flyover of some of the Old Testament. And we are just going to, before we get to Matthew 6, because we have to establish a couple things, namely why Jesus is passionate about who our identity rests in. Uh, And so listen, Genesis 1 tells the story of creation. It tells the story of God taking the chaotic waters and a formless place and making order and life out of it. And then in Genesis 1, chapter 20, uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, he makes human in his image, humanity, and he blesses them and he calls them to rule over the world together with the Lord. And listen, this is really important because from the beginning, you and me have the unique privilege of reflecting God's image to the rest of the world. You and me, oh, listen, I need that to sit for you. I And you have the unique privilege of taking God's image and reflecting it to the rest of the world. And so the first chapter of the Bible lets you know that you're not a mistake. Okay? You're not a nuisance. You're not a burden. You're not an obstacle. You're not ugly or disgusting. You're a beautiful image of the Creator. You're someone that He planned to be here to bring His character into the world in a way that only you can do that. And as image bearers, we're responsible to love other people in such a way that you're willing to go out of your way for the benefit of others. Being made in God's image means that you have a responsibility to maintain a just and harmonious relationship that cultivates unity among one another and sets each other up to prosper. Listen, I'm going to say it again. Being made in God's image, it means that you and I have a responsibility 
to maintain a just and harmonious relationship that brings about unity and sets each other up to prosper. In Genesis 1, that's the Eden ideal. A humanity that's co-reigning over the earth with God in such a way that they give life and they empower everyone they come across. But we know how the story goes. Adam and Eve take from the tree, they sin, and they cause a rift between them and between them as a unity and God. But what doesn't change is God's standard for relating to his people. From day one, God has been committed to teaching humanity how to thrive and cultivate his creation. Even after he has to ban them from the garden, he stays with them. If you read through the Old Testament, God is never far from his people. He actually leaves his paradise to show us how to get back. He created a people that bear his image. And listen, he refuses to abandon him. The God of the Bible refuses to abandon his people. And I don't know where you sit, but that's good news for me today. Because my week was messy. And knowing that there are some things that I did this week that warrant someone walking away and God saying absolutely not is good news. Listen, he sets the standard of a love that is always pursuing us, even if it puts him in the crosshairs. He is always pursuing us. He is always coming after us. He is always uh, uh, taking um, the, the punishment for us. He is always putting himself in the crosshairs for us. Listen, his love, it's steadfast and it's long-suffering. It's constant, it's empowering, it's life-giving, it's sacrificial, and it's redemptive. This standard of seeing people worthy of saving, thriving, and living, it has a name in the Bible, and its name is righteousness. The Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah. Say that with me. Tzedakah. Okay, do it again. Here we go. Tzedakah. Listen, you don't have to clear your throat like other Hebrew words that are like, <laughs> okay, it's just tzedakah. And anytime you see the word righteousness in the Bible, that's the Hebrew word underneath it. And listen, we often, and I'm not sure why, but we often confuse righteousness and morality. And so I just want to clarify, morality is when your definition of right and wrong is influenced and determined by your culture, your society, and your upbringing. Righteousness, however, is a fixed eternal standard of relating to humanity that God has committed to uphold. So righteousness doesn't have anything to do about why you think something is right or wrong. Righteousness is about your standards becoming God's standards. God's standards becoming your standards. <laughs> it's about what he thinks is right or wrong being what I think is right and wrong. That is righteousness. Listen, what I'm saying is that no matter what you do, God is eternally committed to loving you, saving you, and allowing you to flourish. And he will accept nothing less from himself than eternal sacrifice because he is righteous. It is his standard of how he loves us. And that's how he has decided what a right relationship looks like and therefore, it is his righteousness. It's his righteousness that leads him to pick out one family from the many scattered in Genesis and devote himself to restoring them so that he can restore the world. It's because of his righteousness, his standard for what it should look like to love humanity, that he would pick 
the people of Israel, the family of Abraham, to be a light to the rest of the world and bring his blessing to them. And so in Genesis 12, here comes Abraham, and God meets him, and he makes a covenant with him, and he promises Abraham a nation um, that are as many as the stars, and that the blessing that he gives Abraham will be a blessing that that people take to the rest of the world. And so in Genesis, you follow this family line from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob and Esau. That's a bit of a mess. Really, every generation in Genesis is a hodgepodge of what you shouldn't do in your everyday life. Um, and from Jacob, who becomes Israel, um, he has 12 sons. And the one you follow the closest is Joseph. And Joseph gets sold into slavery. He goes through a mess. And, uh, but somehow, he becomes the right-hand man to the Pharaoh. And uh, the Pharaoh finds favor with him. He reunites his family. His family is allowed to live in Egypt. Okay? For 400 years, the family of um, Joseph thrives in Egypt. What I mean is they had babies, dog. Babies. They multiplied. They were fruitful. Okay? Um, and they grow to a huge number. Uh, so huge that there's a new Pharaoh in Egypt, and he's terrified that the people of Israel are going to outgrow Egypt in number and power, and they're going to be able to take them over. So the new Pharaoh decides, here's what I'll do. We'll just strike down all the newborn males so that they can't continue to grow. And it's this huge mess of Israel being oppressed by a people for no reason other than the people they were being oppressed by were fearful of them. And so um, a bunch of people are killed, a bunch of children and babies and families are slaughtered for no reason, no just reason, and the people are crying out to the Lord. And in Exodus 2, it says that God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham. Now, real quick, it's not like he forgot his covenant with Abraham. It's like I was at your 24th birthday party, and at your 24th birthday party, you were like, hey, next year I turn 25 and you're invited, okay? And for the next year, nothing happens. And then I show up at your 25th birthday party, and you say, you remembered. And I say, of course, I was invited. I told you I would come. That's what it means when God says he remembered the covenant of Abraham. It's not like one day he was like, oh, the people, I think they're being oppressed. <laughs> I should fulfill that promise I made. No, he comes and he lets the people know that he has considered them and remembered them and he's here to fulfill his promise that he made. Does that make sense? Great. If it didn't, I don't have another way of explaining it. So. Uh, <laughs> and so he remembers his covenant and he raises up a man called Moses who was one of the children who doesn't get killed. Actually ends up getting raised by the Pharaoh's family. It's a whole other message. Anyway. Uh, so raises up Moses Moses confronts Pharaoh. God uses Moses to bring Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. Okay, here's where, like, so like if you're reading the Bible and a bunch of time has passed in multiple chapters and then all of a sudden time slows down, you should notice that. That's a big deal. So when it goes from like a thousand years and three chapters to 40 days in one, you should stop and reread that chapter a couple of times because that means something. So now they're at Mount Sinai, okay? And God is giving instructions of how to function healthily as a nation to prosper and be a light to the world. Okay, so what you're going to find if you start reading 
what is called the law, okay, the teachings that um, God gives to his people. You're going to come across phrases like this. I'm just, there, there are so many, but I, there's one chapter that has them multiple times. So in Leviticus 25, you're going to come across phrases like this, okay? Um, so in 35 through 38, it says, If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you to the land of Canaan and to be your God. Okay, so there's verses like that. Then if you skip forward to verse 41, it sounds like this. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possessions of the father. Uh, for they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. Then you get like um, in 55 where it says, For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Do you notice a common phrase? <laughs> I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord their God. Listen, the people of God are called to a high standard of treating one another because when they were slaves in Egypt, he remembered his covenant, he liberated Israel, not because they deserved it, but because they were worth it to God. So when God brings his people out of slavery to himself, he says, because I did it first, now you go do it. Because I showed compassion to you, because I laid my life on the line for you, because I went before you, now you are responsible for one another in the same way. God is teaching Israel how to be righteous as he is righteous. When God's people are living in a way where God's standard for relating to them as his image become their standard for relating to one another as image bearers, then they are living in righteousness. You're going to come across that term a hundred times in the Bible. In righteousness, living in righteousness, being in righteousness. And if you don't understand that, that's God's standard for what it means to treat one another because that's how he does it. It's going to be really confusing when it becomes a noun and you are righteous and you're not going to have any idea what it means. Maybe better put is when God's standards become your standards, you are righteous. That's what the Old Testament says. It's not about how you grew up or what you were influenced by, but whose image you bear. It's not about how you grew up or what you were influenced by. It's about whose image you bear. And what we see in um, Ezekiel is fascinating. I'll, I'll read that to you. Um, Ezekiel 18, 5 through 9 says, um, If a man is righteous and does what is just and right. Okay, what it's about to do is tell you what it looks like to be righteous. Okay, here we go. If he does not eat upon the mountain or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully, he is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. Righteousness is about how I relate to you, how you relate to your community and your neighbor, and how we function as a community in the right way. 
It's about making sure no one slips through the cracks, everyone's accounted for, and everyone's loved and taken care of. Because God said that that's the way to do it. Because he reaches us in that way. So that brings us to our text. Now I had to lay that first because the first line in Jesus' section here is beware of practicing your righteousness. And if you don't know what righteousness is, you're going to have no idea what it means to practice righteousness. I think we have this idea in the church that righteousness only has to do with what God did in my place, what Jesus did in my place to bring me back to the Father. And that's true. But if that's all it is, then what is Jesus talking about here when he says, practice your righteousness? So let's pick up with uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Be aware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. We know what righteousness is. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reread this verse, I think, plugging in this definition that we have. Beware of practicing relating to one another with the standard God has set in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Beware of practicing relating to one another the way God would relate to us to get their attention. So what if we know that what, righteous, what righteousness is, what does it mean to practice righteousness? Well, it has to do with the Hebrew word. I know we're talking about a lot of Hebrew today. It's crazy. I never thought I'd do this, ever. Um, it's a word called mishpat. Again, you don't have to clear your throat. Say it with me. Mishpat. Beautiful. You guys know two Hebrew words. You're basically scholars. So it has to do with the Hebrew word mishpat, which is typically translated to justice. Listen, in the Bible, you hardly ever find the words righteousness and justice separated from each other. You almost always find them not just next to each other, but wrapped in together in what they mean for God's people. In the King James, it's translated as rights, which is where America gets its idea of everybody has a right. It's from the King James Bible. When America was founded, that is where they get their terminology that I have a right and you have a right. It comes from this word mishpah that gets translated as right. And sometimes it is a right. Like in um, Deuteronomy 18, uh, the tribes are being separated and the Levites don't get land because they're grounds and maintenance for the temple. And so what it says is that what will happen is the rest of the tribes will give one-tenth a tithe to the Levites so that they can live off of the crops of the land without having to work the land. And Deuteronomy 18 says that is their mishpah. It's their right. It wouldn't be, it would be weird to translate that as justice. It's their justice to receive a tithe. That doesn't make sense, but it is their right. And later in the Bible, you see justice um, used in uh, ways that meet the vulnerable. And so I would say one out of 10 times in the Old Testament, justice is used as um, um, retributive. Like you did something wrong, therefore my justice is to make that right. That does happen, but it's really rare. Nine out of 10 times, justice in the Bible is restorative, meaning you are vulnerable and your needs have been taken advantage of. Therefore, the just thing to do is to come alongside you, restore you in that need, and make sure that your needs are continuing to be met as a vulnerable person. And that definition of justice fits the Levites because if 
the rest of the tribes stopped giving them food, they would die. <laughs> they would starve. They don't know how to farm. It's a farming community. And the way that you are um, stable in an ancient farming community is family and land. And the Levites don't have any land. And so if they can't have land, they can't grow crops. They can't grow crops. They can't eat and they'll die. It'd be very easy to take advantage of the Levite people. So God says it is their right and it is your job as a just people to make sure that they get the food that they are owed for making sure that your worship is maintained correctly in the temple. Throughout the Old Testament, this word mishpat, it develops a, a fuller picture than how we see the idea of justice in America. And when God's people are doing mishpat, it's almost always talking about taking care of four groups of people. Um, uh, it's, re- it's referred to among scholars and, and other Bible people as the quartet of the vulnerable. It's the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. All over the Bible, the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant are given special concern because in an ancient farming community, if you don't have family, you don't have land, then you are vulnerable and you could be taken advantage of. Say, me and Taylor are ancient Hebrew farmers, okay? I die, and Taylor is now left in charge of maintaining the land and ownership to the land. Women did not have much or any of a voice, and so it would be easy for my brother to come in and say, mm, this is my land now. And he could do whatever he wanted with Taylor at that point. She had no voice. An orphan has no connection to family or land. The poor are probably serving someone that they had to sell themselves to because they couldn't pay for their land. The immigrant comes in with nothing and is put to slave work because of the injustice of humanity. And so they don't have any connection to family or land. That's what the entire book of Micah is about. If you read Micah, Micah is so mad Because Israel is tipping the wages and the scale system. And so people are coming in wanting to buy wheat and having to pay extra because they've rigged the weights. Um, they uh, They are trading properties with one another, but actually making sure that it benefits them and theirs before uh, they think about anyone else. And so they're gaining property um, unjustly and then keeping it and making profit off of it and then turning those people into slaves. Micah is ticked. And so the whole book of Micah is about how God's going to come and serve justice to the people that's both going to hold Israel accountable for what they're doing and restore the vulnerable in the community of Israel. Micah, I mean, Job addresses this. We'll look at Job. This will be the last Old Testament text. I know you're probably exhausted from the Old Testament. Job 29, um, 11 through 16, it says this. Uh, Job is making a case um, for his character to the Lord because everything's been taken from him at this point. When the ear heard other people's ears, they called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it approved. Why? Because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on Sedekah and it clothed me. My mishpat was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. In the Bible, doing justice is the action you take that upholds righteousness. Doing justice 
is what you do to uphold righteousness as your standard for how you are to relate to one another. Does that make sense? So by me going out of my way to meet the vulnerable and make sure that their needs aren't going to slip through the cracks, I am saying that God's righteousness is my righteousness and these people deserve that at the very least. In other words, practicing righteousness is doing justice. This form of justice, it never puts you in the seat of the judge. Let me be very clear. You will never find yourself serving the vulnerable in your community because God has called you to do that and you want to give him the glory and then finding yourself in the seat of the judge. Actually, almost always, it puts you in the position to be taken advantage of. Almost every time when you say, because God has called me to do it, I'm going to serve this people. I'm going to help the vulnerable. I'm going to give my things to make sure and my time to make sure that these needs are met. It puts you in the seat to be taken advantage of. And that's what Jesus' point here in Matthew verse, chapter 6, verse 1 is. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from the Father who is in heaven. Their response is not your reward. When you give and you help meet a need, how they respond to you, if they even know you're doing it, which is a whole other issue, that response is not your reward. Your reward is when God sees and uses you to meet the need of a vulnerable people, his kingdom moves through you into those people, and that's your reward. Being a part of Jesus' kingdom, moving forward into the rest of the world and restoring the vulnerable. That's your reward. And if we think our reward is the response of others, then it's gonna, we're going to live a very, very shallow life. And then he moves on to verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. A mentor of mine told me that um, we're called to do justice in a way that does not draw more attention to me than it does to the people I'm advocating for. And so if I am attempting to do justice in a way that puts me in the spotlight, I'm not doing biblical justice. That's not what I'm doing. I am doing something that puts me in the spotlight. That's called pride. But biblical justice is me saying, the people I'm advocating for, they're the ones that need to be lifted up because they're the ones whose needs aren't being met. That's biblical justice. And biblical justice is holding up and practicing righteousness. And so when Jesus says, be careful when you practice righteousness to be seen by others. He's saying it's so easy to do what you're doing for your glory and not the Lord's. And there's no reward in that. There's nothing in that except for an empty shell of a life that's going to leave you exhausted because you're constantly looking for the approval of others. He goes on in verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that your father, uh, so that your giving may be seen in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Listen, I think what he's saying here is if you're able to disassociate yourself with your act of giving, and let me clarify, I think that sometimes we think giving to the needy, I think most of us immediately think poor and homeless which is not a bad thing. 
But that's not what Jesus is necessarily saying here. He's saying the oppressed and the vulnerable in your community. So your neighborhood is going to have a different amount of vulnerable people than the city will and a different kind of vulnerable people. And when we give, I think sometimes we think that like we're being charitable and that we're doing them a favor. And that's a horrible way to think of meeting the needs of the people in your community. What God is calling us to do is to empower people by helping their needs be met. And so if you're able to disassociate yourself with the act of your giving, then you're able to see more and more how big God is in this situation. Listen, when you're able to separate yourself from your act of giving a need, protecting or providing for the vulnerable, you're able to put God in the place of supplier and sustainer. You get to watch him do a work and you get to take yourself out of the equation and trust that when the Lord says he's going to meet the vulnerable, he's going to do it. It might be through you and it might not. And even crazier than that, when you go out of your way for the benefit of the vulnerable, you allow yourself to become vulnerable, to be manipulated and taken advantage of. Now, I'm going to be honest. I planned to do this sermon before everything happened this week. Okay, this is not a response sermon. And so even more so, like, why am I talking about what I'm talking about? Doing mishpat is what gets Jesus killed. Okay? Think about it. What is Jesus' entire ministry, what kinds of people are they taken to? What kinds of people does Jesus meet? What kinds of people does he make sure he gets in between them and their oppressors? The whole New Testament is about a people. Listen, at this time, at least 50% of Israelites are slaves. Are slaves to either other Jews or the Roman Empire. At least 50%. And Jesus goes to those people to liberate them, to bring them out of oppression, and it gets him killed. The Pharisees aren't mad that Jesus knows more than they do. They're not mad that Jesus is quicker at the Bible than they are. They're mad because they hold Judaism at a high standard. And when people come and defile Judaism the way that they think it should go, they're willing to murder. That's Paul's whole backstory. He is so passionate about the Jewish heritage that when the idea of Jesus comes and soils what he thinks it should be, he murders hundreds of Jesus followers until Jesus meets him and says, that's not what I did. I came back to restore what it means to live for the Lord. And Paul's life is transformed. Listen, Jesus goes and meets the vulnerable and it shatters the category that everyone thought Judaism should look like. And they murder him for it. He goes to the poor. He goes to the widow. He goes to the orphan. He goes to the immigrant. And he welcomes them into his kingdom. He tells them, your sins are forgiven. And listen, at this time, there had been a shift that had happened by the time Jesus shows up in the Second Temple Judaism that if you were afflicted negatively physically or socially. It was absolutely a result of sin that you were participating in. Absolutely. Like no ifs, ands, or buts. 
if something happened to you negative, it's because you were in sin. On the contrary, if something positive happens to you in any form, it's because you're upholding the law beautifully. And so when Jesus goes to these people who are recognized and outcasted for being defiled by sin and broken by the Lord because of it, they just can't believe he's sent from Yahweh. They can't believe it. And he's making a mockery of them, and he's doing an injustice in their eyes to Judaism as a whole, and they kill him. Jesus practicing righteousness is the way that he gets killed. The turning point in the New Testament for when they decide they're going to kill Jesus is when he flips the tables in the temple. Okay, You ever read that story? He walks in. He's like, what are you doing? Everyone's like, oh my gosh. Okay, Here's what's happening. Um, Normally, a marketplace would be held outside the temple. Okay, because um, that was the, the Feast of Pentecost, so, so not the Feast of Pentecost, a Passover. Uh, so all the Jews from all the surrounding nations that were scattered from the exile have come back to celebrate Passover, remember the Exodus story. But they come to make sacrifices in the temple, but you're not going to walk Jeff the goat 40 miles to Israel. So you get to Israel, you go buy a goat so that you can sacrifice it in the temple. What was happening is they were rigging how much it costs to get a goat or ram or whatever you needed. And they were upcharging, but not outside the temple. They were upcharging in the temple. So you had to go into the holy place to be taken advantage of so that you could give a sacrifice for your sins. And not only that, when you were one of the vulnerable, you could go in and get a dove free of cost. Okay, but what has happened is now doves cost. And so if you read the story, Jesus flips a table and it says he moves in between the poor and the vulnerable and the Pharisees so that they can get doves without having to pay. That's what he does in the temple. He flips a table. He stands in the way of the vulnerable so that they're not taken advantage of anymore. And he says, you have become a den of robbers. I mean, how much more do you want? Jesus cares about the vulnerable and it gets him killed. It is that moment that they say, this guy is too much. He is destroying our system. We have to put a stop to him. And so they do whatever they can to get people convinced that he is worthy of being murdered. And it works. And he does that so that you, you, sitting here today, would know that there's a God that knows you at your lowest that sees your vulnerabilities and says, I'm the God of the vulnerable. And he meets you where you are and he promises liberation. He promises freedom. And he says, if not now, in the kingdom. He promises an eternity where oppression is not even a thing. An eternity where freedom is the utmost standard. Jesus comes and allows himself to be manipulated so that we would trust and know that there is a God that goes beyond oppression, that there's a God that goes beyond taking advantage of, there's a God that goes beyond the injustices of the world. Jesus dies so that we would know that there's a greater hope than your circumstances. And some of your circumstances are huge. But Jesus' hope is huger. Like, that's real. 
huger is not real. <laughs> but his hope is, and it's huger. Like, <sighs> Jesus knows that when you practice genuine God-fearing righteousness, people are going to think you are crazy because you're spending time in the dirty, contagious, broken, depressing trenches. But it's what he calls us to do. Why? Because Jesus sees every person as worthy of saving, as worthy of thriving, and as worthy of truly living. And so he comes to be our righteousness to the Father. Our sin makes it impossible for us to love God as he's called us to love him. So Jesus comes to be our righteousness and die the death that we deserve so that we could receive his Holy Spirit, be welcomed into the kingdom, and have the ability to both love God the way we're called to and love one another the way we're called to. In the eyes of the Bible and in the mindset of Jesus, freedom from oppression doesn't start when you make a new mandate. It starts when the people decide there needs to be a culture change. It starts when the people of God say, the vulnerable in my community are being taken advantage of. And God has called me to come alongside them and make sure that they're lifted up no matter what I believe about that person. It's not how God sees them. God sees them as worthy of life. And so if he died for them, I need to be willing to do that. And if you're not willing to do that, then you are not practicing biblical justice and you are not walking in biblical righteousness. Now I'm gonna be honest, that's hard to swallow, especially right now. It doesn't matter what they're doing as a vulnerable people. It matters that they're a vulnerable people and that we as the church are called to meet their needs. And so chances are there's a vulnerable people in your neighborhood. There's a quartet of the vulnerable living around you. Think about the elderly in our society. They have no voice anymore. They live and have the most knowledge and then at a certain point it doesn't matter and they get no say. And they're vulnerable and they're taken advantage of. Just, I mean, just think about that. And the church may or may not be doing anything about it. We live in a society that says you can take justice into your own hands even if they are or aren't Christian. That's, cr that's bonkers. That's crazy to me. Jesus says, they bear my image. You bear my image. Protect them. They're vulnerable. Jesus says, you bear my image. They bear my image. You have a responsibility for them. Being righteous is both about serving the vulnerable and accepting that Jesus took your place on the cross. And knowing that Jesus took your place on the cross can make it so much easier for you to love other people when you see that you didn't deserve to be to, to die for. Like, you didn't. God sees you as deserving, but like, if you read the story of the Old Testament, like, we're not. He died knowing we were still going to say no. That's crazy. Like, he died knowing that you were going to accept Jesus one day, and the next day be like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> like, that's crazy. But that's what Jesus does. He does that. 
And when you're able to see clearly that, man, like, I didn't deserve that, and he still did it, it's so much easier to go and love people that are hard to love. It's so much easier. And so Mike is going to come back up, and he's going to lead us in some more worship. And, but I, I want to challenge you today, not just because our country is where it's at. I was going to challenge you with this other way. But even more so, we have a responsibility for one another to make sure the vulnerable in our community aren't slipping through the cracks, to do what it takes to bring about restorative justice to the people who, who are vulnerable, who can't do it, to be a people passionate about not just equality, but like biblical equality, like the kind we're going to see in heaven, where there's no favor, but God gets the glory, like that kind of equality. And Jesus shows that that's possible by giving up his life. And he shows that it's possible for us by coming back and saying, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to give you the spirit. He's going to do in you greater things than I did. Just trust him. And so he leaves. And the Holy Spirit comes and he empowers believers. And so I don't know what your week looks like. I don't know what you're going to face this week. I don't know what you're going to go do or... Or not do. I don't know. I'm, I'm not saying, just practically, I'm not saying like go protest. I'm not saying whatever. I am saying that maybe even your neighbor is vulnerable in some way. And they're in a position to be taken advantage of. And if you don't recognize that and do something about it, what is the point of being a people of God if we don't go share who Jesus is with people? Not just by words, but by advocacy, by saying, you're worth it because God died for you. I'll do, I'll do what I can. And sometimes it takes a, a people to come around a person. And sometimes it takes a person to knock on your door and say, are you okay? And so, man, Jesus is greater than oppression. Jesus is greater than your vulnerability. Jesus is greater than your brokenness. And he wants to come do a work in you right now. He wants to come break walls down in you right now. And maybe you need to know that you're vulnerable and need to ask for help. That's good. That's a good thing in the eyes of Jesus, to ask for help when you need it. He says, ask and you'll receive. And, and maybe, maybe God is convicting you to do something about a vulnerable person or people that you know. And you need to reckon with that now. Because God's standards are too great and too fulfilling and too rewarding just to say, mm, I don't know. I know you died on the cross, but like, it's not worth it to me. That's crazy. You were worth it. You are worth it. You're still worth it. God, even if you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, God still sees you as worth it. He didn't just like check you off and move to the next person. And listen, if you don't know Jesus in this place, man, do it. You're worth it. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you're going to do. You're worth it. And he wants to meet you right here, right now. He wants to show you what transformative power looks like. That he can take the desires that you think are the forefront of your life and replace them with desires that bring about fulfillment by just giving him the glory. It's crazy. It's so good.
Don't miss this opportunity today to press into Jesus, to ask him, what, what do you want me to do? How can I love the vulnerable? Who are the vulnerable in my neighborhood, in my city, in my state, in my country? Who are they, God? And is there something I can do to help meet their needs and to love them well? Like you meet their needs and love them. So during this time of worship, uh, I don't know. Just pray. Pray. Don't miss this opportunity to ask the Lord what he wants you to do because he says ask and you'll receive. And he wants to do some huge things through this church. He wants to do some huge things through um, this city. And he wants to do some huge things through y'all. If we would just say, God, what do you want me to do? He's not going to hold back if we're genuine. And it's always going to have to do with the vulnerable in your community. I love you guys.